Welcome back to The Look and Sound of Leadership, an ongoing series of executive coaching tips designed to help you be perceived in the workplace the way you want to be perceived. I'm Tom Henschel, your executive coach, and today we're talking about building emotional intelligence. Jen coordinated large-scale events for her consumer products company. Twice a year, she was responsible for putting on events for more than 5,000 attendees. The rest of the year, she put on small events for only 500 or 1,000 attendees. In her feedback report, people praised her gifts of coordination and tactical command. What they didn't like so much was her style. There, they used words like intolerant, inflexible, and harsh. Over the course of our coaching, Jen repeatedly described situations as frustrating. For example, she told me that arguing with one of the founders about a new process was frustrating. One particular direct report of hers was frustrating. Dealing with a favorite vendor was frustrating. She overused frustrating so much I couldn't help but tease her. We ended up laughing about it. Soon we were talking about why it's important to have a rich emotional vocabulary. I began by stating a premise. I said, Jen, you tend to name all your feelings as frustrated, but it's a safe bet that you actually have more feelings than just that one. What do you think? She said, that sounds reasonable, but are you saying my emotions aren't limited, but my language is? Well, I said, I'm saying they influence each other. It's, it's like a loop. I think that having a limited vocabulary to describe your emotions creates a limited capacity for experiencing your emotions. But you actually think I have all the different emotions, right? I mean, they're all there? So that it's like a painter who has a whole palette of bright colors but is only using a couple shades of gray? I told her the limited palette analogy was perfect. And she asked... You think that if I had a bigger vocabulary to describe my emotions, people wouldn't think I'm harsh or intolerant? Really? It's that simple? Well, I said, it's not that simple, but I do think a better vocabulary is part of the fix. Here's why. I told her that her lack of words for describing her emotional life created a kind of emotional scarcity. I believed that scarcity contributed to people experiencing her as harsh or intolerant. In some ways, I said, she was intolerant of her own emotions. She was only allowing herself to experience a select few. That struck a chord with her. She told me that one of her direct reports had accused her of being made of stone. Then she said, But Tom, I don't want to be emotional in the workplace. That can't be good for me. Wait, Jen... We're not talking about you running around boo-hooing or screaming at people. I'm talking about having a healthy relationship with your emotions. I went on, I've been coaching more than 20 years, and I've seen that the leaders who are most magnetic, who draw people to them, don't choke off their emotions. Their range of emotions is robust. Same with people who get lots of support from other people whether they're at your level or their assistance. We're happy to root for people who have a healthy range of emotions. She thought about that, and she cautiously agreed. And then she asked, Is that choice really available to me? 
I mean, can I just decide to broaden my range of emotions, really? I asked her to imagine a young child whose emotions are just developing. Her environment will, in part, determine whether her palette of emotions becomes scarce or abundant. For example, in one home, displaying an emotion like elation might be celebrated, but in another household it might be frowned upon. Distinctly different emotional palettes would emerge in each case. By that definition, many of our emotional responses are learned responses. So if we can learn emotional responses when we're young, we can unlearn them as adults, or repattern them, or choose them consciously. I said, here's the biggest reason this is important. Our emotions directly affect our behaviors, and our behaviors are what make us successful in the workplace. I gave the example of someone who hates feeling embarrassed. As a consequence, he might avoid apologizing, even when a simple apology would diffuse a difficult situation. His feelings, or his avoidance of a feeling, creates his behavior. She laughed, and she said she actually knew someone just like that. I gave two other examples. A person who protects herself against feeling defeated might avoid competing to her fullest. Or someone unwilling to risk feeling frightened may flinch when offered opportunities to shine. My point is, I said, that a limited emotional range can limit your behavioral range. Well, she said, my palate is pretty limited. All my emotions look kind of the same to me. And I'm only talking about my own. I haven't even started thinking about anyone else's feelings yet. Well, that's as it should be, I chimed in. What we're talking about is called emotional self-awareness. It's focused on increasing your knowledge of your own inner workings. I told her that emotional self-awareness is the first step in building what is called emotional intelligence, or EQ. She knew the phrase, but not much more than that. I explained. In 1995, Daniel Goleman published a book called Emotional Intelligence. This influential bestseller made the case that in a multitude of measurable ways, emotional intelligence, EQ, matters more than IQ. By showing a wide variety of studies, Goleman demonstrated how individuals who are high in EQ consistently perform better both at home and at work than people who are high only in IQ. Since then, businesses have begun to accept that emotionally intelligent individuals and groups can positively affect the bottom line. Consequently, they invest in developing their employees' emotional intelligence. Performance reviews now regularly have as a goal demonstrate greater emotional intelligence. And I can attest that a desire for someone to display more emotional intelligence triggers many coaching engagements. A perfect example of that is Jen. In its simplest form, emotional intelligence is made up of four building blocks. I'm going to list them for you. Number one, the first building block is emotional self-awareness. That's what I was working on with Jen. It's the ability to understand your own unique emotional inner workings. Number two, the second building block is the ability to use that self-awareness to manage how you respond to your feelings. Number three, the third building block is awareness of how your behaviors affect others. Number four, the fourth building block is your ability to manage your behaviors with others 
in order to get the most positive results possible. So, I told Jen, she and I were working on building block number one, building her emotional self-awareness. I told her we would use a simple two-step process. Step number one for Jen was to begin to recognize when a feeling was present, which, I suggested, was practically all the time. Since Jen was not in the habit of registering her feelings, she might not know they were happening. She would need to adopt a belief that said she had feelings that were alive and active inside her. She said she could imagine she had many feelings inside her, but that they were locked away. She said, I picture my feelings like little old women abandoned in cells in some basement deep below my surface, and they're pretty frail because I don't let them out much. Jen joked, Actually, most of the time, I think they're in a pretty deep sleep. I joined in and said if she wanted those poor old creatures to venture out of their cells, she'd have to make it really safe for them. She'd have to pay attention to even their slightest stirrings and then coax them upstairs. So step number one, to develop emotional awareness, notice feelings. Accept that they're happening even if you can't register them. Acknowledge their existence. Allow them. Welcome them. She sighed and said, This is going to be really different for me. Having observed that feelings were happening, step number two was to name them. I introduced Jen to a one-page chart called The Feeling Word Grid. I've mentioned The Feeling Word Grid in two other executive coaching tips, Self-Awareness and Self-Management, which was posted in October of 2012, and Lead with the Heart, which was posted in January 2006. The Feeling Word Grid has seven columns. Each column is headed by a feeling word like happiness or sadness or fear. And then each column has a list of words, and the words are ranked by intensity, either strong or moderate or weak. There are well over a hundred words on the grid. So here's how step two works. After Jen noticed she'd had a feeling, that's step one, right? She would look at the feeling word grid and try to identify what she had felt. That's it. I suggested that the mere act of examining the list closely and trying to synchronize it with her inner mechanism would be like taking all those old ladies out for exercise. Jen laughed and said, I've had those poor old things locked away so long it's going to be a challenge telling one of them from the other. Jen worked hard at steps one and two, but she found that it was a real struggle. Many of my clients do. If you're not used to registering and recognizing your feelings, raising your emotional awareness can be disorienting. One of my clients said it was like trying to taste a flavor other people were describing. He was never quite sure if he was doing it right or not. If you try these steps, listen for when your vocabulary begins to expand. When that happens, most likely you're describing your feelings more accurately. The feeling word grid can help you expand your range of emotions. If you'd like it, just ask. I'll tell you how in a minute. Jen worked to develop her emotional self-awareness with the same diligence she used on her events, and her emotional fluency changed. Descriptor words besides frustrating began filtering into her stories. She even began using emotional vocabulary to describe her observations of others. 
her expanded vocabulary, and the permission she was giving herself to experience her own emotions, was leading her toward the look and sound of leadership. If personal growth and self-development is something you'd like to work on, five other episodes you might listen to are Self-Awareness and Self-Management and Lead with the Heart. Those are the two I mentioned earlier that also mention the feeling word grid. The other three episodes you might listen to are Choosing Persistence, Getting Unstuck, and Leadership and Self-Deception. Each of those podcasts and all our others can be found on the Essential Communications website, EssentialCom.com. That's EssentialCom with two M's dot com. If you'd like the feeling word grid, go to EssentialCom.com. On every page of the site is a button that says Contact Us. Click that and let me know you'd like the grid. It'd be my pleasure to send it to you. Longtime listeners also know that when you're on the site, If you click the navigation button marked Coaching Tips, you'll go to a free archive of over a hundred Look and Sound of Leadership episodes. In the archive, you can search categories that interest you, and one of those categories is Personal Growth and Self-Development. There are more than 40 tips in that category to help you develop yourself. From the website, you can also download every tip as a PDF to save for yourself or forward to others. Our podcasts are also available through iTunes. Just search for the look and sound of leadership. Until next time, I'm Tom Henschel. Thanks so much for listening.